Amen. I'm glad that y'all are here today. Thank you, worship team. What a, what a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord and worship Him together. Are y'all ready for some truth? You want the truth, right? I mean, I'm so tired of being lied to. You know, and, and I, I feel like so many times we're so accustomed to hearing and being lied to that um, when we do hear the truth, it's pretty jarring. I mean, we're, we're, we're just kind of, you know, uh, lulled to sleep, if you will. So when we hear the truth, and it's the truth of God's word that I bring today. You know, we live in a day when very few people fear God's judgment. Very few people fear God's judgment. You see, the, the little g God, little g, of most Americans is a feeble, tolerant old man who would never send anyone except the very worst people to hell. See, this Americanized God <laughs> grades on the curve. And it's a pretty lenient curve. Unless you're a terrorist, a, a mass murderer, a serial rapist, or a, a habitual child molester, you have nothing to fear come judgment day. See, it's a popular theology of our day that if you're a good person, it doesn't matter what you may believe about God or about Jesus Christ. Don't worry about your sins. God understands and will overlook them, and someday we will all be in heaven together despite all our faults. See, it is vitally important that we base our view of God and his future judgment on his revelation that is in his word. Scripture says the word of God endures forever. The word of God endures forever. We cannot base our view of God and his future judgment on the common notions of our popular culture. We need a wake-up call. This is the alarm sounding this morning. See, if we join our culture in thinking that God's judgment is nothing to fear, then we are in for a very horrible reality on that day. On that day. And on the other hand, if we will be delivered from that judgment according to God's promises through Jesus Christ, Amen. We, we, we would be putting ourselves through needless misery to worry and fear that day if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. See, our text shows us that the coming day of judgment will bring great fear to those who scoff at God, those who make light of him, but it also brings great comfort to those who fear or revere his name. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 4. And we've been in Malachi for quite some time now, and we're wrapping up our study of the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, I want to read uh, six verses, uh, 1 through 6, that's the end of the chapter, the end of the prophecy. And so we're going to read this, 
together. If you have your scripture, and we'll open up to Malachi chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi writes this. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall, and you will tread down the wicked, for they will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the, the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse." Loving Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you gave us your word, your promises. And Father, I ask that you would just be with our hearts even now, that your Holy Spirit would just speak to our hearts, that, that, that your Holy Spirit would draw in the truth of your word. And Father, that, that you would cause us to, to look at our lives. Father, the things that we are doing, the things that are going on. And Father, that you would bring about a great repentance first in your house, your people, and then across this land. Father, I pray that you would do that for your glory and for your honor. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You know, there's four references in this passage, this chapter to a great and special day. And it's mentioned twice in verse one, again in verse three and verse five. And the phrase is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And that phrase occurs 29 times in the Old Testament. So it's not a new concept. I'm not throwing something out that the other prophets and, and other folks in the Old Testament have talked about. It's, it's 29 times in there. And it's frequently used by the prophets to point to a future time when God will intervene dramatically in the affairs of history. The happenings on this day occur with progression over an unknown length of time. For example, the first coming of Jesus when he came incarnate in the flesh was, was one part of the day of the Lord. But the message of chapter 4 focuses on the, the apex, the, the pinnacle, if you will, of this special period. And the word in verse 1 of chapter 4 says, behold, <laughs> behold, that should capture our attention. It should be like, listen up, wake up, pay attention to what is being said next. It should open our eyes so that we say, whoa, 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 what, what's he saying here? For behold, the day is coming. And Malachi points out two points about this coming day. The first is, is that the day is coming with certainty. 
with certainty. Verse, verse 1 states twice, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And then further on it says, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3 underscores that God is the one preparing the day. If God says he's preparing a day, he's preparing a day. He's coming. He's putting this into motion and twice it's emphasized in this warning that none other than the Lord of hosts is the one that the one who rules over the entire universe, the one who spoke this world into being is saying, I'm preparing a day, and that day is fixed, and that day is coming. Most of you know that Tracy and I, my wife, are building a house. We're supposed to close on that house this Thursday. Praise God. But there is a day fixed when we are supposed to close. And we have to be at that appointment to close. And on that day, all of those accounts will be settled. When God says he is fixing a day, it means there is a day coming. There's a closing day coming for each one of us and for all of history. You know, as the Apostle Paul said on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, to his skeptical audience, he said, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day. And if the Lord of hosts has fixed that day, you can count on it. It is most definitely certainly going to happen. He also says it's a day of destruction. You know, earlier in Malachi's prophecy, God's people claimed that, that he was pleased, that God was pleased with evildoers and even blessed them with prosperity, allowing them to escape the consequences of their sin. And that's what he talks about in chapter 3, verse 15. But a day of settling the accounts, a day of settling judgment was certain. But notice how the judgment was promised. It was promised in the form of fire. It was promised in the form of fire. I'm not making this up. It's right there in the word, in the text. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and the day is coming that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. See, fire as a means of God's judgment is found often in Scripture. There's several different places where it's mentioned. I just want to recall one of them here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. It says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And it says in this passage in Malachi that it will leave them with neither root nor branch. Neither root nor branch. And it indicates a complete removal from the face of the earth. But it's not a total annihilation. Other references indicate the fact that there will be everlasting suffering for the wicked. 
everlasting suffering for the wicked. Jesus mentioned eternal punishment in the same sentence that he mentioned eternal life. They go together. For those who are righteous and found in the righteousness of Christ, they will have eternal life. For those who are wicked and evil, they will suffer forever. Eternal punishment. Revelation 20, verse 10 and 15 makes it clear that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It goes on forever and ever. If anyone's name is not written in the book of life, he also will be thrown in the lake of fire. And day and night forever and ever sounds like a very long, long time. Jesus described hell in Mark 9, 48 as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. See, people who scoff or who make light of God should be fearful, although they seldom are. Most of the time they're not. It kind of reminds me of the ninth grade civics teacher who had to give his, one of his students an F. And the boy reacted as, you know, to the teacher by total surprise, asking, well, how come? And the teacher told him, he said, you didn't pass a single test. He said, you didn't do any of the homework. You didn't turn one homework assignment in. And you would not participate in the class discussions. And the boy stood there in silence for a moment, and then he said, and you mean you flunked me for that? I mean, come on. Don't be caught off guard when God's day of judgment hits. You know the assignment. You have the letter. You have the syllabus. Figure it out. Because what happens is we say, well, I didn't know. I had no idea this was going to happen. We're like that. You mean you flunked me over that? If you're comfortable in your sins and your notion of God is that he would never judge anyone, then I hope that today you will be troubled enough to run to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he and he alone can save you from the great day of the Lord. Unless you are in him, the blaze of that day will leave you with neither root nor branch. And if you are in him, then looking ahead to that coming day would be a source of great comfort. I mean, here's why. It will also be a day of deliverance. It's going to be a day of deliverance. All who fear or revere the Lord's name are promised rewards. You know, it talks about the, the son of righteousness in there. The S-U-N, the son of righteousness in, in, in verse 2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the sole of your feet. On the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. This, this phrase, son of righteousness, it only occurs here, okay, in Scripture. And this metaphor should be understood as referring to the healing process of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, think about this. Think about trying to improve, trying to improve the work of Jesus for us 
with our own righteousness. Think about that for just a moment, of of trying to improve on what Jesus has already completed. It would make as much sense as someone trying to light a candle in order to help out the sun on a sunny day. It's so bright it doesn't make any difference. And God's righteousness through Jesus Christ is so pure that it's not going to make any difference. He says our righteousness is as filthy rags. But just as the rays of the sun warm and bring warmth and health, Jesus brings wholeness to every aspect of our lives. The healing of broken relationships, the healing of broken hearts, and every other kind of brokenness. And as a result of this restoration and wholeness, God's people will rejoice like calves who have been released from a stall. I mean, it's a picture of joyful freedom of those who have experienced God's deliverance from sin and from affliction. You've seen young calves jump out in the field and run and frolic and play, and that's the kind of joyful freedom that he's talking about because of the day of deliverance. Both destruction of the wicked and the deliverance of the righteous, they are both expressions of God's love. I mean, see, God hates sin. Because he loves all people. He loves all people. And sin is the ultimate cause of all destruction and brokenness. And those who hold on to their sin will pay the penalty for their sin. Either you pay the price or Jesus pays the price. It's one or the other and it can't be both. Either you pay the price or Jesus pays the price for our sin. You see, I want you to notice in this passage God's love in action. I mean, we've emphasized the theme of God's love for his people all through our study of Malachi. All through this series, we've talked about how much God loves his people. In verse 2 of chapter 1, his first statement was, I have loved you. So in these concluding verses... That theme is revealed once more, and two of the leading figures in the Old Testament that we read about are mentioned, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, and they were sent because of God's loving concern for Israel. Because he loved them so much, he sent Moses. Because he loved them so much, he sent Elijah. Moses identified with the law of God and Elijah with the prophets. But notice that in the final word of the Lord through Malachi, (laughs) In verse 6, he says, So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So that I won't come and turn the land upside down with a ban of destruction. See, a curse of condemnation is what all of us as sinners deserve. We deserve condemnation. We deserve God's punishment. But the love of God provides an alternative. And Moses and Elijah were sent to make that alternative possible. Now there's a progression here. Just hone in and, and, and for just a moment here. First there was the personal alienation from God. Okay. Due to neglecting his word. Personal alienation. Separation. Isolation from God. By neglecting his word. Then you have 
family alienation. And if that's not corrected, the final step is national destruction. National deterioration. I mean, where do we find ourselves today in in, in 2021 in the United States of America? We're isolated from God. We're separated from him. We're separated from each other. And and, and what we see is a national deterioration. This is the progression that I'm talking about. But it goes all the way back. Sin has always resulted in separation. You see, (laughs) getting ahead of myself here, God's remedy for the nation was to send Elijah, to send Moses, to call the people back to repentance before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Before. Call them back. Call them back to me. And God only sends judgment if we reject his offer of mercy. See, these people were indifferent to God's great love. So first they needed to get right with God in obedience to his word. And then they needed to get right with each other. I mean, these are the two great commandments. Love God, love others. On which all of the law and the prophets hinge. Malachi is saying the key to reconciled families is that we obey God's word. Now, family alienation, family separation, and family isolation results from forgetting and disobeying God's word. I want you to pull over and park the truck for just a moment, okay? Pull over and park right here. Family alienation results from forgetting and disobeying God's word. Sin always results in alienation. Sin always results in separation and isolation from God and from each other. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? When Adam and Eve sinned, Adam disobeyed God's word. They hid from God and they suffered distance in their relationship with each other. This is the progression I'm talking about. Adam began to blame Eve and God for his problems. Because sin leads us to guilt. And guilt, when it's not dealt with properly, leads us to blame. And blame leads us to anger and and alienation. But pride causes us to justify ourselves and actually attack the other person. Even though we were disobedient. Adam was disobedient. The first thing he did was begin to blame Eve and God for what happened. And the thing is, is it's like the the guilt was not dealt with and so it led to anger and alienation, isolation. And we see this as a basic pattern that applies to all of our relationships. When we sin, when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, it causes a problem not only between us and God, but it causes a problem between us and our spouse and our fellow man. See, one party wrongs the other party, and the offended party retaliates with anger or resentment in some way to get even. To get even. 
to even the score. And instead of humbling themselves before God, asking for his forgiveness, and then asking forgiveness from the other party, both sides begin to blame each other. And the increasing blame and anger create further distance, further isolation, further separation. And at the bottom of the whole cycle is the root sin of pride. I can't be wrong. You must be wrong. I can't be wrong. God, you must be wrong. Wife, I can't be wrong. You must be wrong. And so what happens is we begin to blame each other and it just continues to increase and increase and increase. And what happens is we're out of fellowship with God. We're out of fellowship with our spouses. We're out of fellowship with our fellow man. So what's the solution? God says in verse four, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I have commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. You see, in Hebrew, the word remember not only means just to remember or recall, but it also means to obey it, to obey it. And when we forget and disobey God's word, we experience family alienation. But understand this, family reconciliation, the coming back together, results from remembering God's word and obeying God's word. You see, our Bible is the, is, is the manual for all of our relationships. It tells us how to be rightly related to God and to our fellow man, the two great commandments. It explains why we are alienated from God. It explains how we can be reconciled to God through faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It tells us how to maintain a close walk with God through daily faith and obedience and repentance. And it explains why we are alienated from one another. The same reason, because of sin. It tells us how to fix all of those, how to be reconciled with one another through obedience to God's commandments in all of our relationships. Remember, remember the The law of Moses, my servant. Go back to the law. Remember that. See, to reverse the cycle, we need to remember God's word. But you can't obey God's word if you don't know what it says. You can't obey the word of God if you don't know what it says. You can't remember what it says if you haven't diligently studied it in the first place. And we can't use our lack of knowledge or our short memories as an excuse for disobedience. (laughs) I need you to just hone in with me here for a minute. I'll be done in a little bit. But I mean, I could say a ton more about this right now, but I'm going to limit myself to two observations. The first one is this. You want to write this down. You can only remember what you already know. You can only remember what you already know. I mean, that sounds obvious. It's almost ridiculous, but it's not. I mean, many Christians disobey God's word all over the place and often through ignorance because we don't know what God's word says. This is really important, and I want you to just hone in here. Dorothy Sayers, she pointed out that there are two kinds of laws. There's man-made laws and there's natural law. Man-made law and natural law. A man-made law, for example, would be like a city's parking ordinance. They come up with a law, you can't park here, you can only park here between this time and this time. Okay, that's a man-made law. A natural law would be if you put your hand in the fire... 
it's going to get burned. Okay? Natural laws are not affected by humanity. The city council could pass a resolution that says, you can now put your hand in the fire and not be burned. But I wouldn't advise you to, take, to do that, okay? Even though the city council may pass that law and say, you could do that and you won't get burned. But you and I both know that if you put your hand in the fire, you're going to get burned. The law of God is like a natural law. You don't break it without it turning around and breaking you. God's law, the law of God is like a natural law. You don't break it without it turning around and breaking you. It has built-in consequences. So as sinful human beings, we can get together and we can agree. As sinful human beings, we can agree that it's okay now to engage in sexual acts before marriage. It's okay to engage in adultery. It's okay to engage in homosexuality. And it's okay to, to, to have abortions. We can decide that anger is not a sin, it's just a natural human emotion. But our opinions and our resolutions do not alter the law of God. It changes it not one iota. Because God has ordained, according to Galatians 6, 8, if we sow in the flesh, we will reap from the flesh destruction. So if a man sticks his hand into the fire and then complains, well, I didn't know that it would burn me. His ignorance doesn't alter the fact that he got burned because the fire burns everyone, even those who are ignorant of its characteristics. And just like that, just like that, sin destroys people and relationships even when those sinning don't even realize that they are sinning. Sin destroys people and relationships even when those sinning don't even realize that they're sinning. So you will only remember and obey what you already know. Secondly, I would say this. You remember whatever you believe is important. And I've heard people complain and they just can't remember what the Bible says. They say, I've, I've just got a bad memory, but that's not, that's seldom the case. Unless you're suffering from maybe a, a brain disease like Alzheimer's or something like that, you can remember the things that are important to you. You can. Every one of us can. And the key is to regard the information as important. See, a main reason we forget God's word is that we don't regard it as crucial for our survival. We feel like somehow we can take it or leave it. And we can add it to whatever we're doing. But the word of God does not change. Recognize he has fixed a day. And it's coming. It's significant that in these closing words of the Old Testament, God makes reference to both Moses and Elijah. They both met with God at Mount Sinai. They were both on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. I believe that they're the two witnesses in Revelation 11, Moses and Elijah. See, the law, let's talk just, moment, just momentary about the love, love and the, and the law, and then love and the prophets, and then I'll, I'll be done. 
But the Lord described Moses here as my servant. And in the most significant way, he brought the the Ten Commandments down from the mountain and he taught them those decrees and those commandments to the people. He brought the law of God to the people. And the Ten Commandments reveal that which is best for all people. Think about this. It talks about our relationship with God. It talks about our relationship with each other. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, don't kill. I mean, all of these things are the Ten Commandments that that the Lord has given. And and he says right here, remember the law of Moses. You want to return? You want to repent? You want to come back? You want to be in, in, in fellowship with me? Then return to the law of Moses. And obedience to God's will always brings the greatest fulfillment in our life. I mean, we as Christians are not saved by keeping the law. But we do discover the most rewarding way of life by conforming to his commandments. You see, we do best. We do best when we remember God's commands. I mean, God doesn't say, behold, (laughs) I'm going to send a therapist to help you work out through your rage towards your emotionally abusive father. That's not what he says. He says he would promise to send Elijah. Behold, verse 5, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. I mean, we need an occasional Elijah to get in our face so that we will deal with our sin and be ready for the coming great and terrible day of the Lord. One final point. Elijah was also known in Israel as a leader among the prophets. He was the only one who escaped death. He is the only one who ascended into heaven. All true prophets were sent by God and their primary task was to help Israel turn back and return to the Lord. I love this because notice that Elijah's task before the day of the Lord was to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. I think that's substantial. See, turning people's hearts from sin has always been the work of the prophets. He sent them because of his great love. And fathers and their children are the focus here as an example of peace and of the type of peace and reconciliation that God desires for all people. So the prophecy of Malachi, it opens and closes with the proclamation of God's love in action, that God loves all people and people of all nations. Maybe you're wondering, well, Ridge, why are you talking about fathers and not about mothers? The answer is the text mentions fathers, okay? But we could easily extend everything that is said to mothers. But I mentioned fathers Because so many American men, even Christian men, are relatively passive in their homes. They're relationally passive in their homes. They leave the spiritual training of their children to their wives or to the church or to the church staff. It's not Jeff Watts 
responsibility to train your child in spiritual things. It is not Casey Jumper's responsibility to teach your child in spiritual things. As a parent, as a father, you have the, 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 <laughs> the biblical mandate to teach your children what God's word says. You have that, and, and, and too many men are relationally passive. They spend too much time at the job, rationalizing it by saying they're showing their family love, by providing for them. But if you are an absent, passive father, if you are not relating to your family in God's love, if you are not providing, you are not providing what they need the most. They need a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. And they need to see that first in you. I think this is huge because when you begin to obey God by judging your own anger, look inward. When you begin to obey God by, by looking inward and, and judging your own heart and recognizing that there is enough dark junk in here that when I get this taken care of, God's not gonna be my problem, my wife's not gonna be my problem, my fellow man's not gonna be my problem, my problem is right here. And when we begin there, and begin to obey God by judging our own hearts, by demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit towards your family, and by setting an example of walking with God, God will bring healing in your home, in your relationships, in your marriage. It doesn't happen all at once, but it will begin. But it has to start by asking God for forgiveness. To repent, to turn around and go the other way. Stop mocking him and start honoring him. Start obeying him and obeying his word. And that's really what Malachi is saying. We, we ask God to forgive us. And then we ask our family's forgiveness and we begin to obey God by, by walking in love just as Christ loved you and he gave himself up for you on the cross. See, Malachi was a faithful messenger to his generation and to each generation that has followed. And I've loved studying the book of Malachi because it is, it, I have gained wonderful knowledge about who God is and how he deals with his people through Malachi. My prayer and desire is that we, that we would be Malachi's in our day speaking into our culture. But it all begins right here. And with a heart of humility towards God. The way up in the kingdom is down. Down on our knees, asking for his forgiveness and repenting of the sin that trips us up so easily. In just a moment, I'm gonna pray I'm gonna ask our worship team to come back up and they're gonna lead us in a couple of, of songs. I'm asking that during this first song, if you would just, just listen. Just, just tell God, say, Father, I am open. I am open. Read my heart. If there is something that I need to repent of, I wanna do that this morning. I make the front available. If you wanna come and kneel before him, do it. If you want to kneel right where you're at, do it. Use this time.
to get together with God so that times of refreshing can come in your relationships with others so that we can reverse this deterioration that we see. Let's pray together. Loving Father, I thank you for this time. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just quicken our hearts. Father, we know that your word says there is a day coming. And Father, that that you would send Elijah ahead of time to call the people to repentance, to call them back to return to you. And Father, that that you would send times of refreshing, that you would send times of of reconciliation and, and of love and of joy. But Father, it, we've got to take that first step towards you. You've already paid the price for our sin through your son Jesus. You've already made a way. You've already sent the, the, the way for us to be made right with you. But Father, we have to humble ourselves. And I pray that we would do that this morning. Father, that, that, is there not a cause? Is our nation not being laid to waste in ruins? Father, I know that repentance begins with the house of God, with your children, saying, Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I messed up. But I want your peace. I want your joy. I want your healing. I want to be made whole. But Father, I pray that a spirit of repentance would be on each heart that can hear my voice. And that we would grieve over the blame that we've tossed, over the ridicule that we've put forth on our neighbor, on our fellow man, over the way that we have scoffed at you and made light of you and not revered and feared your name. Father, I pray that would be the case today. Father, that that there would be a great revival that takes place in this church, in our hearts, among our people, and in this nation for your glory. And I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.